Welcome to the podcast of The Urban Mystic. This is a follow-on from the previous uh, episode uh, where we just continue a conversation around our understanding of, of mystical experiences and some of the dynamics that, that, that come up. So let's dive in. The one thing that immediately springs to mind from this is the, is the questions of um, trustworthiness and reliability and unpacking those, especially from our foundation where we're pretty much taught not to trust this kind of stuff. And where from a non-religious background, even opening to it sounds like, man, is this dodgy territory? You know, what's the difference between the crazy cults and Kool-Aid? And, and what ought to be a natural and consistent part of life and our spiritual and mystical experience, you know? Um, you know, the question of can we trust these experiences and spiritual beings or, yeah, and what's the line or the distinction between things like the projection and accurate perception, even delusion, delusion, deception, you know, there's all things that, that, that come to mind. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. It's a, it's a question that I think is, is very much on my mind as we talk about this, but I think it's also very close to the lips of people as soon as you start to talk about this, uh, especially within religious contexts is a kind of a hysteria response that says this cannot be trusted, um, sometimes for good reason, but across the board, that's the answer. This cannot be trusted. And a friend who was describing the, um, the faith caterpillar to me and that she was raised with this idea within the Christian tradition that uh, any experience is first approached using the head of the caterpillar is the scripture, and so every experience must be interpreted firstly through that, secondly through then your faith that then bolsters that approach of looking through the lens of scripture. And lastly, at the end, whatever is left over is permitted to be your experience, uh, which is usually oh, barely a shade of what went in the, <laughs> the first site. Um, as Billy Connolly says, committees are wonderful things. There, there are places ideas are sent to be bashed so that what comes out on the other end is, is very, has very little resemblance to what went in the front of the committee. And I get the sense that it's, it's a similar sort of hysteria. But it's a bit like those outlier arguments, like you said earlier, the argument of, well, you know, somebody in the 1400s just had a whiff of something and decided to kill you know, all the women in their village. And it was a religious crime. And therefore, all religious beings, all experience, all everything like that is tainted by this same bloodshed uh, and is not worth it. And I think there you have to then rescue from that, from the hysteria, that there are some very good and valid questions around experience, especially where it comes very simply for me to the idea between uh, God's self, the self, um, and then the other parts of self, uh, you know, some of the mystics and prayer writers refer to sh uh, shadow self um, or false self. There's all this sort of jargon that goes into it. And I'm not familiar with that in the other, uh, in the other religions so much, but it's also very prevalent within psychological practice, this idea of, of the part of you that, uh, that is hidden from you sometimes. You know, Freud and Jung would have talked about the subconscious and unconscious, etc. But those three distinctions and just starting to interpret uh, where am I receiving this message from? And so there's some good questions there, but one has to not approach that from the hysteric side um, and go, 
all of this is just absolutely unreliable because the the sad not the sad the blatant fact is even statements like that are being approached not from an objective truth perspective <laughs> but from the perspective of experience it might be collective experience there might be a million of us that have got together to agree that this is how we should do it um, but it's still built very much from first person experience so that's one of the places that all falls apart is if you want to reject experience outright well you know you might as well just um, put a noose around a tree branch because you've got a, a difficult time at life if you want to get um, hysteric over all sorts of experience we we are actually choosing to leave the outside the outliers aside or to have conversations about the outliers in an appropriate place rather than to let those outliers actually define the conversation. You know, for a lot of people, there's there's always a sense that, ah, oh, this is subjective experience, there's no scientific validation for it, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, that kind of thinking is rooted in yesteryear. I mean, we've got we've got grounded research methodology. We've got a, you know, I've got a I've got a paper that I downloaded today on um uh, let me let me even just just pick up the title of it uh, for you here quickly. I think you'd be you'd, you'd you'd like this. It's examining the nature of psychoanalytical knowledge. You know, um, is actually the title of the opening chapter of it. I don't actually have the book title, but 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 people can actually do that. And and of course, the scientific methodology is actually applied to these things. You know, when when Glaser and Strauss researched people dying they researched the phenomenon of people dying in care homes right and they 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 developed a scientific methodology that enables us to research these phenomena and and these experiences and to build a collective picture of it and to define it and and it's that kind of stuff that actually forms the groundwork of what i'm doing with this and so it fits between the 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 data collection stuff and then the deep dive stuff, you know, between the quantitative and qualitative analysis, you know, you've, you've got to fit in both. And the stuff that you bring out about the faith caterpillar, the outliers, and this interaction between God, the self, and the self are all fundamental to this. And they're very important subjects and topics to, to explore. Maybe what we can do is just take a stab at, at all of them very easily, very quickly, and then have a bit more. I think the outliers are are, are, are easy because it's they all relate to the should, the would, the ought to. They're all projected. They're all out there. None of them are related to the first person, present, continuous, and the immediate. And they're not related to experiences that we have access to. And so they're often related to the causes or they're related to the specialists out there. You know, so so on one hand, there's those things, you know, the, the historical stuff that everyone can point to, the, the big picture stuff out there, the low-hanging fruits to derail the conversation, the the obnoxious responses, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's other outliers that include the fact that people fake the stuff and that they are professional mentalists who can show you how that stuff is faked the Darren Browns of the world and, and others. All of that is accepted as though there is no awareness of the notion of false prophets <laughs> within these religions going back millennia, right? <laughs> so so it's kind of like going, I have this one thing that derails something 
And oh my goodness, the religious people and spiritual people and mystical people must never have thought about this. And this one sample pool and this one sample behavior is universally true. And of course, that is another area that is done in research. And it's hard to, you know, it's hard to ki teach kids mathematics and it's hard to teach people research. And and there's everything logic and you know, et cetera, et cetera, that, that everyone that everyone goes to. And so when we're setting aside the outliers, we are setting aside the fact that it can be faked, it can be induced. And, and there's 101 good reasons we can dig into both in the world today and in history in the past to go, let's have nothing to do with any of this. But it doesn't take away from the fact that in the way that someone will wake up to their sexual desires at some point in life, the majority of people also wake up to their spiritual desires in life. And that desire includes the pursuit of this. Now, how, how we are dysfunctionally constrained and taught in life around this is a separate issue as well that I also want to leave not in the outlier box but kind of like leave out of the picture as well because this is a basic human need and desire and it seems to be very much a part of how people are wired and I think on one hand the faith caterpillar is an unhelpful response <laughs> whereas this notion of the interaction between God's self the self and the self is actually a useful template and it is one that naturally becomes part of the the subject because at the end of the day what people are what people are cultivating is the practices that bring them into engagement with the transcendent and those practices include the inward journey of the engagement with the self you know and so um that's just a long introduction stab but this faith caterpillar what do you what do you what do you make of it i feel like it's uh it's it's the exact opposite of the tri of the of the tri tricycle, and so <laughs> of Rawls tricycle exactly, and so in many ways, people are taught one, and a lot of people that I engage with are grappling with Rawls stuff as well, and they're grappling with what Raw has put forward around this, and it's a it's a useful thing just to contrast. I I think it's a useful thing for us to. There's this this wonderful. Um, he's still alive, I'm quite certain. He was a Harvard professor uh, by the name of Parker J. Palmer. Uh, phenomenal book called um, To Know As We Are Known. And he's writing from an educational context because that was his, uh, his area of scholarship. And he talks about the experience of children within a classroom environment where this might sound like we're going in a slightly different direction, but hold on with me for a minute. Um, he says that, you know, when we apply this aggregate system to children and we say, you know, we have a class in which this class is a 60% a class, he says the, the potential truth behind that statement is that there is not one child in that class who is obtaining 60% as an average but we have children all around the 60%. And when you aggregate it and you, and you give this average, that's where it falls. And it's a way of oversimplifying a reality. With, with a class of 25 children, um, there might be not one who is actually experiencing that 60% average, but they might be all over the show. And that also within that, there's a way of dealing with the outliers. You might have 90 percenters and you might have 20 percenters in the same class. 
and the 20 percenters are given the badge of 60, and the 90 percenters are given the badge of 60. And it's not an accurate representation, but it is a simplified way of understanding that class, which is, in the one hand, incredibly helpful, and then the second is completely misleading. And I love his take on that, because when I think of it this way, and I think about institutional religion, I think they've done the same. The outliers are hard to deal with, and so I know we've, we've put them to one side, but our 20 percenters and our 90 percenters are difficult to deal with, and so we do almost want to exclude them. And when you look at things like bell curve, et cetera, that's really what those things are set up to. It's actually to minimize the effect of the outliers. But what it also does is it tends to sandwich everybody else as well in this tiny little middle stream. And I think there's a, there's, a, there's a sense of ease that comes with that. It's just much easier to understand the reality. I don't need to explain Timmy and Susan and Johnny and Richard and everybody to you in that class. I can just say Smith's class is a 60% class. So there's ease of handling the concept. There's ease of understanding. I don't have to work too hard. And so I think we say, you know, well, all experience is bad experience. It's easy. You don't really have to think much further than that, you know. Um, and it does all of your thinking for you, uh, which is a terrible thing, I think, in, in terms of experience, because you actually want to be thinking very clearly and very deeply when you're interpreting experience, along with allowing it to speak for itself and allowing it to be. I think the other thing it does is it not only is it easy, but I think it deals with the fear factor of having to engage personally with each of those students in the class and especially the outliers. And so there is a reactionary perspective to this where I'm actually fearful of what it means to have to look at life and my experience and other people's experience in all of their potential contradictory and difficult and mysterious truth. Uh, and I use that word truth advisedly, <laughs> but but with force. Um, and so I think there is, again, and I've said this a few times before over the episodes, there's very much a fear factor. Um, and I think that's why it, it correlates well with the hysteria that is leveled against experience. And so I'm sure there's more to it, but th those are the initial sort of thoughts I have, is to aggregate is just so much easier and it means you don't have to worry about looking too deeply at all the details and perhaps puzzling over the mysteries um, uh, and the differences and the difficulties, et cetera. It's one of the reasons that social media is so incredibly good at polarity and binary uh, takes on events and issues, et cetera. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why Richard Raw's tricycle is so helpful and his teaching on Trinity, et cetera, um, that it is to struggle out of the tension of A versus B and into looking for a third way of understanding this. And I think experience is very much the truth of, of that is that first wheel. And it's not as simple as the caterpillar of just, I'll just chew anything that I come across through the lens of my sacred text or my tradition, and then just completely destroy whatever may be happening within me. Yeah, I think, I think for the most part as well, as I, as I chat to people, their life experience is a way of completely deconstructing that faith caterpillar as they were often raised to have. And so it's, it's not necessarily a, an image that everyone 
like received and 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 it was explained to them in the same way but certainly the notion a lot of people raise within religious environments is your text comes first your faith your tradition your place of worship you know provides the safety and the boundaries for that <laughs> and and helps you understand that and your personal experience must come second so wherever your, your experience actually contradicts that you've got to set aside your experience to be faithful to your text where your own individual desires contradict that and therefore cast us off limits in some way you've got to submit yourself to that text you know etc cetera, etc cetera. you know and so so it ends up being quite a you know, it's seen as a as as a win in many ways within religious circles to explain this to kids, because of course, of course, everyone's going to do that, right? They're going to, they're just going to submit their lives and their beliefs to, to the text and and their life experience. They're going to go, oh, this doesn't matter, but what it actually does is that it's got the inverse result in the long run, is that is that people's life experience very much deconstructs their faith and the reading of their scriptures, because for the most part, m most religious people don't grow up actually reading their text. They, they receive it secondhand within the traditional, the context of their religious institution. And for Christians, that ends up being most people don't read the Bible and they don't read it well, but they hear a lot of preaching, and a lot of teaching. So, so, so it is fed to them a bit Mac faith and a bit secondhand. Appreciate, yeah, and so you don't get the the deconstruction of of God through the lens of Job. You get it through the through the insert coin pull lever, and out comes a result, right? You know, if you tithe, God's going to bless you. You get that. You don't get the the have you considered my faithful servant Job? <laughs> no, he's only faithful because I've, you've given him everything. Well, fine, go take it away. You don't get that. You don't get that picture, right? That's and although inherently the deconstruction of the simplicities of Mac faith are there within those texts, you don't find that actually being processed in any form or mature way within something like this. You know, um, in fact, people like like Job are cast as though they set aside their experience <laughs> and held on to their faith and they did that blindly and that is pure faith and that is correct and yet that's not the case you know i i like the 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 french language uses the word experience to speak of experimentation and social relationships so if you and i go for a beer we are having an experience but if you and i do a rigorous scientific um study that is an experience you know, um, you know, certainly in the sense of like the, the 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 classic scientific thing. So, so in that sense, I like the unity of it because it 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 it's the use of the word in such a way that my experience actually leads to data, and my experience actually leads to developing a faith and supporting a faith rather than my experience is set aside. Why? Because I've got this text that I've been told how I'm supposed to interpret it. You know, and I don't read it for myself. And if if I do, I read it poorly. You know, um, and so I think I think for me that's that's the flip side. I, I think the other thing is is I think you have to trust your experience. You know, if you if anyone that reads that book, it's all about people experiencing, <laughs> right? And in the context of their their lived experience is the experience of God. It's there isn't a disjunction between the two. And so the problem that I have with things like this faith caterpillar thing is that the God that is believed in by faith is not the God who is experienced in daily life. And it's not a God, 
that is people aren't hearing the voice of God they're not experiencing the presence of God they're not feeling the touch of God then don't hear and sense the desire of God or the affection of God you know etc cetera, etc cetera. you know and and the minute you put that into experiential language you end up with the with with, with the challenge that many religious leaders have that they don't have this experience but they do have this faith and they do have these scriptures and so, and so they're not enabling people to build on their experience or even to cultivate or nurture experience. And there's this, there's this, I think, dysfunctional faith that comes about through that. You know, I, you know, I think of, of counseling situations of the number of abused people that are told to, to reconcile and stay with, stay with, their, with their abusers. Why? Because they're married to them. And I, I say, no, no, your experience is telling you to get get the F out, right, to get the hell out as quickly as possible, and you're just being dumb by holding onto this institution of, of, of marriage in that sense. You're like, you need to move on. You need to let go of this thing. You know, and, and of course, there's a conflict there. You know, there are many other examples that I think that we could, that we could list. I think, I think of other people who have given up on the idea of God because they're taught that God loves them and God will protect them, and uh, God's got their back. And the minute they left home, <laughs> they experienced the complete opposite. You know, they they didn't experience all the glowing boundaries of safety from some heavenly protector. You know, they didn't have training wheels on in their life and they got hurt. You know, or they've seen other people get hurt and they've gone this this theoretical fluffy God up in the sky that's going to take care of us and is all loving or either a judgmental douche, you know, on either side of the extreme, just doesn't match up with the reality of what I'm experiencing in my life. There, it's got the net opposite effect of, of what children are often taught within their religion and within their version of Sunday school, you know, to just have faith, you know, and these scriptures are true and they're going, this just doesn't line up in any way with life. Is it relevant? Do I need this? Do I want this? I can cast it aside. And, and certainly many conversations that I have at, with people are a people who deconvert and have deconverted from their faith. Why? Because they tried this thing called adulthood <laughs> and it didn't line up with this childhood faith that they were given. And there's nothing in what they were given in terms of their faith that they can salvage and take with them into adulthood. I, th- I think sort of along those lines and, and going a bit further, I think one of the things that, that worries me and pains me the most is to see the damage that is done to the individual psyches. Sometimes they're just encouraged and sometimes it's just downright manipulation to continue this, this, this state of being of distrusting experience, etc. And you end up with this deeply divided self that, it, that sort of borders upon almost multiple personality. There is the, the faithful, the rock, um, you know, I, I'm completely with God and God has always got me. And, um, and and from the outside, I see, you know, this person desperately, continually telling God who they are in the vain hopes that they will actually be that. And you can almost see it in the conversation, this oscillation back and forth between the person. And then there's the, oh, but, you know, yesterday I was so badly hurt. But God is good. And, and God has got me and, you know, I know what my pastor said, God will never leave me. But yesterday I felt so alone. And then as soon as there's, you know, that's the deep dark hole that I speak to, the fear space of, 
I can't look into that space because I'm just, I'm just going to crumble. But at the same time, the crumbling is happening anyway because there's no integration. There's just huge dissonance within the individual. Um, and they do splinter and fracture into these different... And I mean, that's what trauma does. If you look psychologically, I mean, trauma splinters and fractures individuals. And, and really bad childhood trauma does that to a kid. They become different to who they were. And, you know, we can use the language of who they should be, et cetera, and argue about that. But they do. They, they create this person that will protect them. And here I'm talking specifically, I'm not talking about God to, to human interaction. I'm talking within the self. There is a fracturing and there's, they might not go as far as the, the naming of different personalities. You know, and my name is Jimmy, but I've got a boy inside me called Tommy who protects me when times get tough. But without going to, you know, they, they were looking more sort of clinical diagnoses. Without going to that end, this is happening within faith communities. And I know I see it in conversations with people who are experiencing this dissonance. And what is what pains me even more is that at some level this is acknowledged within the institutions as, you know, in Christianity you've got you've got this um, this language of the uh, the spirit and the flesh. <laughs> And that's just your flesh, man. You've just got to put that to death. It's it's just your doubts. It's all the things that would take you away from God. Or or, or it's even even or if it's taken one step further, as though Satan is tempting you and leading you astray and putting these thoughts in your head. Well, even there, yes, yeah, the devil. The devil is on your shoulder, and you've got to resist, and he will flee from you. And with all these wonderful one-liners that we tag on and throw out. But what is happening is this person, this wedge is being driven further and further and further. And you know, I'll, I'll come to it from a different angle just now, but, but that, that lack of integration within the self for me is a direct byproduct of this faith situation where you're told you actually have to just deny your experience, which is essentially denying part of yourself and saying it is not true and it cannot be valid. Therefore, I am not true and I cannot be valid. Um, and it's incredibly, incredibly harming. I think on the other side, the more positive take on it, which is you know, how I read that sort of Christian flesh and spirit. Uh, and I love Richard Raw's uh, wording on this, where he takes the, the Greek word for flesh and reflects it there in translation rather as ego where there are parts of ourselves that are hurt and will twist things, et cetera, et cetera. And we need to be aware of those. And, and, and at no point is it, you know, part of yourself that you should disavow and throw away, et cetera, but that you have to be aware that if there is a hurt child within you still as an adult, they will behave as a hurt child and they might not have integrated and dealt with trauma, et cetera. And so as an adult, you might show out some rather strange behaviors, but they come from trauma. And so you wouldn't, you know, strange example. I knew a lady once, she was in her late thirties. I was a teenager when I first met her. And every time a cat entered a room, she would literally try and climb out of windows. She would climb over people. I mean, she was just a danger to herself to get away from, and these are domestic house cats. I'm not talking about lions. But when I understood her story as an 18-month-old, a cat had jumped into her cot and landed on her face. And that had, had just instituted this phobia of cats. 
But as an adult, she was in huge danger of doing herself and many other people damage because she was still freaking out by this thing that should not freak her out. Um, and so there was no integration of that experience into the self. It was still very much separate. And she was allowing that to lead her behavior. So there we would go, sure, their experience, we need to ask some closer questions of it. But it's not that we reject the experience and it's not that we distrust it. We actually almost have to step closer to it, uh, allow it and own it, yes. And there needs to be a process of integration rather than this spirit-flesh dichotomy. And you can actually just cut parts of yourself off. And I see it and I think it's incredibly harming, uh, harmful and hurtful for many, many people, especially because they're still locked within the bubble of not being able to see this um, for kind of the institutional tomfoolery, I think that it is. Yeah, and also just not able to have honest conversations because it's, it, it is so filtered and almost dysfunctionally constrained by by the faith as received, you know, that, that like, how do you get past that? How do you own it for what it is? How do you see it for what it is? This is something that often follows on quite often for me as well, I think, as it does for you when having conversations along these lines, is that is that the life experience that people have, even if you give them a simple model like this, you have to, conversations go on to these deep experiences that they have and this disjunction between faith and experience and the dysfunction that they've been taught to, to create a relationship with God that is against yourself and your desires and the way you see and the way you naturally react and feel. And so there's a there's a deep rooted dysfunction that is 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 actually hard to process. You know, there there, there certainly was a stage when I was doing a lot more of this work before my 10-year break from it, <laughs> where where religious people used to spend a lot of time fighting with me about this kind of stuff because and, and I read a lot of that as being the them doubling down on their faith stuff because they were somehow unprepared to face the re reality of the experience and the reality of the abuse and the dysfunction that they were in and, and that's 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 quite hard to deal with you know it's uh it's not you know so i'm not i'm not making light of people who have worked with me in the past and I, i've read them as coming from that um but but with other people as well they feel like the language of this brings them to betray their faith and you know, it's it's a curiosity. I, I mean, I, I describe it as being quite quite curious and conspicuous that these faiths that are all about a personal God in no way help cultivate the experience and the pursuit of that personal God. Right. So people are raised Christian to believe in a God that they're not allowed to pursue the experience of. And so and so if you start experiencing God, can you trust that experience? What do you make of it? You know, the, so so that is that is definitely one that dimension that I, I think we need to give time to talking to. And the other thing is this experience of God and the self relationship with the self, and of course that being a window and a journey towards the self being the authentic self that is that we recover within ourselves and then we live as that authentic self, as opposed to living as the social self or the inauthentic self, the public self that is defined by acquisitions and our 
education and our sense of status, et cetera, et cetera. And so this that that language is actually quite it's it's quite common in, in mystical literature, is that that inward journey and the deconstruction from the worldview that we're in in relation to the reality of the transcendent as we're experiencing it. And so I think I think that is an important conversation, but I think it's one that we should pick up at another time. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I was struck this morning. I, I had a very simple, what I thought was going to be a very simple conversation with somebody. Um, I wanted to invite them into a, into a conversation, a more formalized environment with myself and a couple of others to talk about uh, uh, a very sort of prevalent topic at the moment. Um, and I said to them, and so, so just by way of background, this is helpful. They come from a overtly Christian background and are still within, very much within that. And I said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about something. And their initial response was, oh, sure. I feel as though I'm being uh, called into the headmaster's office. And my immediate response was, isn't that fascinating? I mean, that's, that's how we're still so deeply conditioned. That's what I thought of when you were talking about that. So deeply conditioned by this, um, this thing that is either incredibly good or how did you call it, the, the supernatural douche that just gets completely in the way of us being able to experience because it's built so deeply into us. The authority figure, they must be up to date. There's a lot of these conditioned dynamics that are actually, they're not as neat cut as, oh, I have an idea, let's explore it, right? So for a lot of people, and I, I don't want to oversimplify this in, in this way for people, the model is incredibly simple and straightforward. But as a model, there's a lot of, there's a lot of personal stuff that comes out around it. And so the, the exploration with people and the conversations are often, they're not just about the idea of the experience, the potential experiences out there. There's the weight of lived experience and the deconstruction of of the faith and the religion that people have come from, as well as the experiences that they've tied. And for some people, the the level of abuse that they experience within the institution um, is quite intense. And and to process that is quite hard. And it's it's quite a long journey, but it's it's a fruitful journey for people to go through. And so there is there is something that I that that I say with the with the groups that I run that that every session that I run when I run a group is divided between the human to human interaction. And more in time, I've shifted from teaching to facilitation with that, where people tell their story. And I, I think of that as the human to human interaction. But then another core cool component that I have is this dimension. It's exactly this. It's the, it's the group standing together and inviting the transcendent, inviting God to draw near in person and seeing what God wants to do. And quite often I see an, a curious interplay between the people to whom God draws near to deal with some of this intense, deep emotional stuff in them. And people that are on the side with a complete stranger, suddenly God going, I'm showing you something, come join me in this process of bringing transformation healing to this person. And, and of myself as the facilitator standing there with both, sometimes seeing what God wants to do, sometimes seeing someone else wrestling with God, showing them something, and, and then doing the work of the facilitation for them to hear and be on the front lines of seeing God bring a phenomenal work of healing to someone around 
a particular issue or collection of issues or processes or experiences, you know. And so, so that is a tremendous thing. And 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 I, I've I've seen it and practiced it so often that I'd never want to run a group where people deal with real spiritual stuff and real conversations around this where it is not included. That touch point for people. So for many people, they have a story or an experience like you and I have told and shared about the immediate experience of God, whether it's immediate and, uh, and awake or immediate but asleep, right? And there's that interaction and it's triangulated and it affects your life and it affects other people's lives, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But for other people, their window has often been in that group. And I've seen people who've deconverted from Christianity and deconverted from other religions come into that environment, experience that, and then suddenly they go, oh, this model makes sense. Now I have a literal ton of questions that I've got to ask, you know, and, and I mean, I love drinking coffee. I love drinking beer, love drinking wine, love drinking whiskey. I love drinking tea. You know, I love drinking water. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm always happy to, to, to meet and, and, and have that conversation with people. And I think it is, it, there's fruitful work to it, but these dynamics that you're raising around the counseling dynamics and the personal dynamics, there's an interplay, an ambassadorial and a facilitative interplay between God as someone who becomes presence and, and these issues as well. Um, and these, and these processes, you know, and, um, you know, the, the, the flip side to it is God showing you ahead what God wants to do in people's lives or say to them or something that God wants to touch on. And then that difficulty of going, you know, is this, is this me projecting? Is this an assumption? Is this, is this just my reading of the person or is God actually wanting to do something? Here? And how do I share this? And so there's dynamics involved in the, on, on that human side that, that I want to pick up on and, and process perhaps in the next conversation is this. So how do you hear and how do you know that you're hearing? How do you test it? What do you do with it? But on the flip side, because for a lot of people, there's that famous celebrity psychic or medium or prophet, right? <laughs> and, and they are going to bring you the message and you've got to receive it. But if this is a dimension that's available to all of us, we've got to transition past that. And certainly many people have been on the receiving end of people getting it wrong. And that that is like also an important thing to, to, to pursue. Because I think how you avoid a Jonestown is the transition from the cult leader and the, it's built around them, you know, um, to, to this is common to all. And there's the standard of communication in any relationship is communication, right? And and if God as the transcendent is available to be experienced and wants to be experienced, it is there's a standard that is available to all. And what is that standard that we can expect and how do we go about cultivating it? Pursue. And I, I think for the listener, just to just to sit on a chew through, you know, like what are your thoughts around that? You know, what is your experience of that? What do you make of that? Yeah, I think I think in many ways for for people it's the it's the hero's journey, you know, in that sense. There's the there's there's the experience that upsets life as usual, you know. And and although Joseph Campbell lent a framework to that that I think we can all identify with, this this transition from this this deconversion from religion, landing in a place of no faith and the awakening to the desire to connect with the transcendent i think is 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 enough of a of a of a of a catalyst 
to shift us from life as ordinary into something else. But there's a journey to be go to to go through. And what is that journey? And I think these this this is experience for people is that and and often often the catalyst is not necessarily the experiences that one's gone through the past. The catalyst is the becoming to the experience in the now. And the becoming to becoming present to the experience in the now is also one way we can go. Uh, I as me becoming present to me and others around me is also becoming present to the transcendent who's becoming present to me. You know, and it's there's this wonderful confluence of different dynamics, but as participants. But I think that the, the main thing as a as a takeaway is the is the is the recognition that there's a lot of questions that emerge about the experience. And there's a lot of life experience that throw up a lot of red flags and concerns and questions and 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 encouragements to actually go beyond this thing where people have been taught to have faith apart from experience to actually set that aside as to go you know it's great that they taught us that as a child <laughs> i don't want that i actually want to engage the reality so how do i go about doing that and what can i expect in that experience i think if, if i were to to want to leave the, the listener with one final encouragement, it would be in terms of what you're saying, that though there may be great challenges and questions, etc., that come with facing, owning, interpreting one's own experience, that it is still worth doing. And it is worth doing as honestly and as bravely as you can do and also not do alone. Um, there's always some sense of individual aloneness that I think is, is linked with experience, but it doesn't always have to be alone. Um, but not to shy away from it and to embrace that this is very much a valid part to life. And if you can, just to park to one side for a few moments um, any of the hysteria, definitely, I would say park that to one side for a long time. But um, any of the immediate sort of knee jerk that comes up that might have come from experience, uh, from experience of tradition institution that says it can't be trusted, don't go into it, etc. Just to park that for a moment. And, uh, you know, the experience can be interrogated itself and be asked, what are you here to teach me? What are you here to, to form in me? And essentially, you know, what I'm saying, and that is we were speaking to the transcendent that is part of that experience. Um, but the encouragement is that it's, it is worth doing, despite the questions, despite the difficulties, and that the questions and difficulties are part of the process, not necessarily red flags to alert you that you should be turning around and running in the opposite direction. So do it as alone as you need to, but also do it with others. Yeah, I think I think for me that's a that's a great place to to leave it, and you know, to the listener, you know, to you, Steve. Thanks very much for joining this conversation again. You know, it's it's again just a, a privilege to have this kind of conversation, and to have it in 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 such a environment of mutual respect and participation. You know, um, this is the kind of conversations we should all be having. So thank you to you, but also to the listener. You know, thank you for being a part of this conversation and this conversation journey. And thank you very much for spending your time with us.